Hi, I'm Lisa. Welcome back to Not Applicable, a podcast that highlights the people that create diversity in the creative industries here in London. Success isn't simply the result of late nights and the right attitude. For many of us, success is a murky byproduct of genetics, parentage and geography. This is the first sentence of an article with the same title as this podcast episode. Work hard, be nice to people and have rich parents. Written by Gemma Germains two years ago. And it is still as relevant today. The first time I saw Gemma speak about this issue was shortly after this article had been published and it sparked a wider discussion, even amongst my friends. It's smashed a taboo and I was blown away by Gemma's openness and willingness to acknowledge her own privilege and her responsibility to create change and make room for others. I knew I had to get her onto this podcast as a guest. Currently, Gemma works as a content strategist at DARE and writes articles on gender and racial inequality in the creative industries. She's had a rather unconventional career path, alongside being a full-time mom and having worked with the Arctic Monkeys and other big names in the music industry. We talk all about privilege, what it means, and the importance of acknowledging it in order to be able to create change for all of us. But without giving too much away, here for yourself, enter Gemma. Hi, um, so I'm Gemma Germains. I'm a senior content strategist at DARE. Uh, DARE's a um, behavioural experience um, design and engineering agency. Uh, we've got offices in London and Bristol. And as a content strategist, uh, I'm this weird sort of hybrid between a copywriter, a user experience researcher, um, an editor and a journalist. And that's pretty much the role that I do here. Uh, I've been in the creative industries, I think, for 16 years now. Um, I started off working in the music industry. I did uh, make pop videos, designed um, album covers, worked with a couple of quite interesting bands in the early 2000s and then jumped ship from there and then I went over to work in theatre which was an absolute disaster so I was head of marketing for a theatre company I was so bad at it, it was really terrible <laughs> and then set my own agency up and had an absolutely wonderful time but never really made any money from it mm. You know, didn't actually work very hard which you know, maybe there was a correlation between the two was that well made studio? yeah, so yeah, you know, loved it worked with just a fantastic amazing time really really suited the, mm-hmm. you know, me being a young parent at the time as well and then for the last sort of five, six years I've worked in content strategy and sort of have sort of found my home I think with Dare. I'm quite comfortable here and quite happy here and for the first time in 15 years I've actually made the conscious decision to, to be in London which is something I'd never ever done before so it's all quite new and exciting at the moment and I've got my little London flat and so yeah so it's quite nice. Oh that's great. Yeah. And like, so you said your son is 16 years old, yes. but you've also been in the industry for 16 yes. years. Well, I found out I was pregnant um, the week before I resat my first year in university. Wow. Yeah, so I was, I was 19 when I felt pregnant and 20, just turned 20 when I'd had him. Uh, yeah, so he's um, 16 next week. Yeah, and then I've got a 12 year old son as well, um, and had you know sort of very very much grown up in the industry, grown up as a parent, and then you know sort of grown up with the kids, and that's been that's been quite nice. And I think when you think about um, the 
the lack of women over a certain age in the creative industries. I mean, you know, there's a massive conversation about why are only 17% of our creative directors female? And I really do feel like we have to temper this against the fact that just at the point where you are becoming experienced enough to assume the role of a creative director, you're also thinking, it's about time I had some kids. Yeah. And no one's having this conversation about why we're losing women and why we're losing very talented women. Um, and I do wholeheartedly believe that the only reason I've been able to sort of, you know, sort of, you know, sort of excel quite quickly through my career in the last couple of years is that because I don't have two toddlers running around at home. And that's quite a difficult thing as, you know, as a, an identifying woman who wants to have children, those are two quite difficult things to reconcile because I do actually think at the moment it is very hard to be a parent and to be in a leadership position mm. in the industry. But like, how was it for you, like entering the industry having a baby? Um, see, this is it. I came in very much via the back door. Uh, I was married to a musician, so I, from the age of nineteen, twenty, I had major label record industry contacts. I didn't have to go off and get drunk with people. I didn't have to go off and party with people. I didn't have to go off and network and spend a lot of time in London. At the time, and this is pure luck, privilege, whatever you want to call it, agency bosses were coming to my house for lunch. So it's you know, so it was luck, it was totally luck, and you know, it's a shame that you know my ex-husband's band never really took off, but that is the only way that I got into the industry is because I knew people intimately at a very senior level. And that I'm sorry to say it's how the music industry works. It's yeah. all about nepotism. Mm. And I just I just took advantage of the nepotism in the best way that I could. Um, you know, so I was able to drop some quite serious names quite early on in my career. I then jumped off and went to work for a design agency who were working with bands. And again, it was just a total, total look that at the time Liverpool was exploding musically. There were lots of very, very interesting bands. We were the only decent creative agency in the city, Liverpool's tiny, my husband was in a band, he was in one of those bands, and that's how we got that work, mm. and I think you go and you sit and you have, you know, so many talks and tips on how to get into the, you know, how to get into the creative industries, how to get into the music industry, and the number one tip should really be, have an influential friend, and you can't, you, you get can't your, really learn yeah. that. <laughs> get your foot in the door through yeah. someone else. And it's really rubbish when you <laughs> say that to people and you don't want to crush their dreams, but it is just like you've just got to know someone. Yeah. So having, you know, having Joe, you know, Joe is a baby. Joe, you know, has sat on tour buses. He's, you know, he's been, you know, to festivals. It wasn't really an issue. It was quite novel, um, but it didn't impede my career in any way because I'd already knew people and I had a value which exceeded the demands that I wanted as a parent. And the demands that I wanted as a parent was that I wanted to be home for a, you know for a great proportion of the you know great proportion of the day. You know when I was working on. I worked on the first two Arctic Monkeys albums. I worked on, you know, bands who you know, sort of went off and won Mercury, you know, sort of music awards. But was actually only being paid fifty pounds a day, cash in hand. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's so rubbish. It was so rubbish. But at the time, working families tax credit um, that sort of managed my income and it gave me, you know, uh, you know, sort of a base to, to live off so I think my partner was earning 
£800 a month from his, uh, from his recording advance and didn't really make any money off touring back then. It's, it's quite different now. This is like, you know, sort of 2002. Mm-hmm. So, you know, between us, we probably had £1,000 a month to live off. You know, that was, you know, enhanced by the government by an extra maybe £150 a month. So that meant that we had a manageable standard of living. It's completely different now. You don't get working families tax credit. You know, you don't have, you know, as, you know, sort of easy access to the kind of, you know, the welfare that we and a lot of sort of poor creative people needed at the time. You know, and I do I do stand by the fact that, you know, the dole, working tax credit, whatever, was just government funded internships, you know, and, mm. and I think it created a lot of very, very successful people. I just don't think you have that now. And yeah. I really worry for the next generation of um, you know, creatives who don't have that parental support because mm-hmm. I just don't think they're gonna get anywhere. Yeah. It's depressing, isn't it? It, <laughs> yeah. it is depressing. <laughs> but it's also like you need to know these things and like yeah. you need to acknowledge these things. Yeah. Like there's no point like not talking about those things. Yeah. I didn't work any harder than anyone else. I worked less harder than most yeah. people. I only worked half a day, you know. Um but I had I had financial support that meant that I didn't have to go off and work in an office. I didn't have to go off and, you know, work in a bar all night, you know, and I didn't have to make that pay off between paying for a couple of days in nursery for Joe. I was very, very, very lucky, and mm-hmm. I wasn't any more creative or talented. I just had a little bit more brain space than people have now, really. Yeah. Um, so that kind of leads me on to like that article that you wrote about your privilege. Yeah. Um, what, what was it called? Work hard, be nice to people, and have rich parents. Yes, exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. I will never forget this talk. Was it a nicer Tuesdays talk? Yeah. Yeah, but it's nice that. And I was like, wow, that is so honest. And it's like, I think it's like for a lot of people, it's quite uncomfortable when you realize you are also a very privileged person. And it's like, you're like slightly cringing because you're like, ooh, this doesn't feel good. Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, oh, this is me as well. How do I feel about this now? And it's like, I think a lot of people feel like shame and guilt. But then also, like, it's really important that you, like, sit with it and, like, think about it and acknowledge it, that you have this privilege. And then I think you can actually move on from that. And do something positive with it. Yeah, exactly. And do something with it. Yeah. So what happened for you after you wrote that article? And I'll give you a little bit of the background to the article Mm -hmm. anyway. So um, I took the whole summer off um, in 2015. So I'd done two jobs and I ended up being given £10,000 from from two jobs, which were complete just fluke. Uh, And it landed the end of May. And I was very, very frustrated at WellMade at the time um, because I just didn't feel like I was going anywhere and I didn't feel like I wanted to go anywhere. And I think, you know, my boys were just at the age where they just started to play out by themselves. And I became very aware that I'd spent an awful lot of time not really having a plan and suddenly the kids were big, bigger and I still didn't have a plan. So I wanted to use this time, this summer off, to write a book or do some study or to do something and I didn't. I just blasted 10 grand and we went out every day and we ate pizza every day and we had amazing holidays and I bought loads of clothes. And at the end of the summer, 
you know, I hadn't written my book, I just hadn't done anything, but I was really tanned and I was really happy and really relaxed. And I wanted to, I, I wanted to like share what I'd learned about not having a plan with the rest of the people. And then I realised, oh my God, I sound like an absolute idiot. You know, that I've just burned through 10 grand. Absolutely just, and you know, how many people have the opportunity to do that? And I was utterly mortified with my behaviour. Um, not in how I burnt the money, because, mm-hmm. you know, I've been, you know, you, you know, I, I come from sort of quite a, a very, very working class background. Um, I've been skinter than you can ever possibly imagine you know I've actually had to shoplift nappies before now it's horrible so there was a part of me that's like I've been poor I'm going to spend £10,000 and it's not even going to be that bad (laughs) (laughs) even saying it's mental but there were there were factors in play I didn't have to worry about healthcare my kids were a little bit older and the sort of the primary sort of reason why I was able to be so irresponsible with money is that my partner's um dad bought us a house um, and even saying it now I know it makes him cringe when we talk about it but I have to be really really mm. honest about it this house that we were given is the the greatest gift to my career that's ever happened in terms of the fact that when our business was doing bad we didn't really have to worry because we were never going to lose our home you know when um, you know sort of I got quite ill at one point and I wasn't able to work. That wasn't an issue because I didn't. We weren't going to lose our home. And when you have secure housing, it is it is a completely different mind frame. Mm. It's when the kids were young and I was a single parent, I got evicted, uh, complained about the rats, and my landlady tried to evict me. And the pressure of being behind on my housing benefit payments because I was using one payment to pay one, it was disgusting. Um, you know, so sort of being behind on payments, having sort of insecure housing, you know, being very, very terrified that, you know, essentially the kids were going to be homeless, we were going to have to move back into my parents' three-bed semi was horrific which you then sort of play off against never ever having to worry about housing ever again unless obviously I split up with my partner you know that it's just it's a completely different mind frame and I realise that I actually sound like a bit of a princess and when you start thinking about that I start thinking about all the other areas that I'm very very sort of um, privileged in so I always use the example of me being um, a single parent. As a single parent, I was a teen mom, and knew that's really bad. But that's only because we have this perception of you know young teenage single parents wearing tracksuits and smoking fags mm. and you know feeding their kids McDonald's and all these other stereotypes. And then actually, all the young, you know, as part of like a little network of um, you know sort of very very young moms, we were all in university. You know, we were sort of well-educated, mm-hmm. you know, didn't come from necessarily the most amazing backgrounds, but there was very, very little trauma. So in my head, I, you know, I sort of thought I was this, you know, on the breadline, poverty single mom, and I wasn't. It was like, well, quite a nice time. And, you know, we went to Tuscany one year while I was on the dole. You know, it's like, it's just embarrassing the way that I thought about myself. And this sort of idea, actually, of how I saw myself versus the support that I'd had not just from my family and not just from the government, but also in terms of the way that society perceived me. Quite a nice, well-spoken white lady. Don't really get judged, you know. Right. If I do get judged, it's, you know, it's very much, oh, look, there's a nice, well-spoken white lady. I can get away with an awful lot. And, and So when I went in to write the article, um, work hard, be nice to people, have rich parents, it was very much from that mindset of 
you know, I say I'm from a you know a working class background. My parents didn't go down the mines or anything. My mum just worked in a pub, you know, and it's just <laughs> and it's just you know you sort of think that you are, you know, structurally disadvantaged, when actually you know you sort of top of the pile. And I really had to have like a little bit of a chat with myself about that. And um, when I went off and did the nicer Tuesdays talk. Uh, a lot. So the, the the closing paragraph of the article that I wrote was about um, recognizing that actually, as sort of white people in the industry, we're incredibly privileged, and that actually raised a big uh, a big conversation. I ended up getting into a bit of an argument with someone on Twitter because they say, you know, uh, you know, there's there are more white people in the industry because I said, what the guy was saying was basically because we're better. And I was just like, oh, this is actually painful to listen oh, to. Yeah, yeah. You know, and even if you pull out the stats, you know, so the stat that we always pull out is that 17% of women um, hold a sort of a position of um, decision-making position in the creative industries. Mm-hmm. And that's grim, but the grimmest one is that 3% of the industry identifies as non-white. Yeah. And then the worst than that is 0.2% of the industry is a non-white person um, or a person of colour, color, sorry, in a leadership position. No one talks about this. No mm. one is going mental about this. And in terms of the epiphany, the only reason I have any awareness of this is because my stepdad is a person of colour and half of my family are people of colour. That's it. I don't mm. care any more than anyone else. I am not more aware than anyone else. I just look at my dad and I go, oh, okay, there's a big shining reminder that it's not just all white people doing white people things. Yeah. And when we talk, you know, you talk about, you know, sort of feeling uncomfortable... In, in you know in us recognising our privilege you know the discomfort of knowing I literally only give a shit about something because of my dad mm-hmm. and then you're just like <laughs> oh god we're just awful people but instead of sort of you know sort of moaning about having white person's guilt it's also sort of recognising if we've got a voice and if I am one of the people in the industry who's going to be listened to you have to use it powerfully mm-hmm. and elevate voices who aren't going to be listened to and that's sort of hopefully the right route that I'm going on at the moment and that's what that article was about mm-hmm. there you go <laughs> <laughs> there you go that's it <laughs> that's an amazing backstory yeah, so much to talk about so what about like the place you work now there yeah they very much hire like a very diverse oh, range yeah. of people it's insane which is very exceptional for yeah. the industry. I, I, I think, um, I, I think so. There's so there's your gender pay gap, which um, we voluntarily um, released, calculated, and released ours. So ours is four percent. Mm-hmm. But then there is another pay gap, which is the racial pay gap, mm-hmm. and I'm desperate to get there to calculate ours because I think ours will come out pretty good. Mm. Um, I've never heard of that. That's not something that's required by the government. No, no, not required by the government. But what they're saying is that actually, if we're going to talk about diversity and we're going to talk about diversity in terms of men and women, that's very much one, you know, one facet of diversity. Yes. You know, and we can sit there and go, oh, look at all these white ladies we've got. Well, actually, people of colour in the industry are so low. Mm. And I think in terms of powerful numbers, if we can sit there and say, oh, well, actually, our racial pay gap is 98%, 97%, 96%, then potentially people would start taking notice but they're not going to take notice at the moment um, 
just you know, just I, I think I think dares would come out pretty well, and that is, um, if yeah, like you say, it's completely exceptional in the industry. Mm-hmm. I've never worked with so many people of color in my life, mm-hmm. you know, and I've been in the industry for sixteen years. Yeah, yeah, and it's and it is a complete breath of fresh air. Was that one of the reasons you started working here? Didn't realize it when I came mm-hmm. here at all. Um, didn't have a clue. Uh, I, I, you know, I came in as a contractor, very much sort of got my head down. And I had, I had intended to sort of be a contractor for a long time. I, I was, I said, I live in Liverpool. My kids were up in Liverpool. They spend like you know half the week with their dad. I had no intention of moving down to London. And the reason that I decided to move to London, and specifically to to go permanent at Dare, was because of the work culture. And um, you know, it would be completely just like insensitive to say, oh, it's because it's so diverse. That's not the reason. Mm. It's because. Um, it's it's incredibly open. Uh, it's a very very honest agency. You know, we sit at the end of every month and talk through the financial figures with the entire company. Um, there's no you know there's no senior management team off in their special office doing special senior management team things. Uh, you are given an incredible amount of like freedom and autonomy to just go off and develop your career. And I think I don't. It's not because of the hiring policy, but I. I think that the success of the hiring policy, the two things just can't be sort of pulled apart. Um, and I, you know, and I do. I just do have to sit there and say it's because the senior leadership team is so diverse. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got of the one, two, three of the six people. Two are women. I think there's actually only one white man on the senior leadership oh, wow. team. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's very unusual. Yeah, yeah. So, I think they're actually in the minority. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it's bonkers. It's actually bonkers. And do you know what I mean? I think you know we do we do hire like for like, and I think there's a reason why so much of the industry sort of you know is created in its own image. Is because you know you've got middle class white guys hiring more middle class white guys. You know if you want to get into you know sort of Daniel Kahneman vibes and all that kind of stuff. You know, it, you know Malcolm Gladwell. Sorry, you know, it's that idea that you know we you know we feel com- most comfortable seeing ourselves and replicating mm. ourselves. You know because we, you know we know what that person's thinking. But actually, when you get into a situation where you've got you know, three people of colour, a woman, you know, and then a random white guy, you are naturally going to have a more diverse agency uh, without having to put any thought into it. There's, we don't have any diversity initiatives. We don't have someone going off being a cultural gatekeeper and any of that. Right. It just happens. Mm. And that's that's the part of me that thinks, you know, it is so natural and easy to do, but you have to put diverse people in leadership positions for it to happen mm. and and then I think well if it is so obvious and it's so easy what are stopping those people from excelling those people <laughs> <laughs> I know it's hard to talk about these things yeah and, and use the correct language as exactly, well exactly yeah yeah so so my stepdad um so he's black um and he calls himself half-caste and right. I have to sit there and say, no, you can't say half cash. You have to say dual heritage. And he's just like, well, you should have heard what I was called <laughs> ten years ago. And it's and it's just, I think it's like, 
it's quite interesting listening to um, the way that my dad talks about his race yeah. and then the way that I try to be so PC. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's so I was sat with my sister and my sister said something which was, you know, so my sister's dual heritage, so incredibly offensive. And I was like, oh, I'm offended on her behalf. And she was just like, and it's that thing of like, I, as a white person, I have to be so on it. Because, yeah, yeah. you know, it's like, you know, we don't have the, you know, sort of, you know, the leeway to use the same language. And it is quite interesting how the, the way that my sister and I will talk about the same political things. And she's just like, man, <laughs> <laughs> she can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you have 16 years of experience. And I'm, I'm guessing you've mainly worked with white males for yes. the majority of the time. Yeah. And do you feel like the way you work now with a wider range of people from very diverse backgrounds is is different? Um, I think, so for, uh, for six, seven years when I was part of Mercy and then that became well made, it was me and Joe and Doug and Joe and Doug were two middle class white guys uh, and it, comparably with there, it was the happiest time of my life, mm-hmm. and I don't think it's necessarily about you know let's not stereotype all you know middle class white guys as being idiots because the majority they're mostly not. So, but, yeah. But with what sort of happened with Joe and Doug and why we sort of thrive, may not financially thrive, but emotionally we thrived, and um, was because it was so open and we had such like a mutual respect for each other, you know. One of the things that we did, and I always, I always say this is like utterly hilarious. If we were invited to talk on a panel, or if we were invited to take part in something, and either one of the boys were invited and it was an all male panel, or I was invited and I was the token female, <laughs> we would pull out last minute mm-hmm. and we would do it on purpose. And our statement would be, we're pulling out maybe half an hour before the talk to say because there are no women on the panel or because with a token woman on the panel and that was like you know this was like we did this with friends we did this with like like our peers and and it was just like the lads just went along with it you know and it was like really damaging to our agency represent like, <laughs> I love it but, and it was just you just sit back and you think that's bonkers that we did that's absolutely mental it's just, you know we it was they, they just went along with it, you know. Mm-hmm. They were they were feminists before it was cool to be feminist, and you know they were feminists before they even knew that they were feminists. And it was, you know, the voice that we gave the agency. It was very much that I was the voice. It was an inherently female voice that went, you know, all of our comms, all of our business development, um, you know, the way that you know the way that we even structured our project, everything. So we get they had a, a rule that. If a client came into the studio, the lads would make a cup of tea. They would offer the tea to the client so that it was, I was never the person bringing the tea because of what that meant. I didn't decide that. The boys decided that. You know, so it's mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, and I know that well-made doesn't, and it's again in just another instance of luck and privilege, doesn't happen very often where you get that kind of relationship. Uh, so that was, you know, incredibly nurturing sort of for my career, for my personality, for my reputation in the industry. Didn't make a lot of money, but it was okay because we were really, really happy. You know, when you sort of, you know, you sort of put that side by side, compare that against what's happening in DARE, the, the diversity isn't noticeable 
unless you actually sit around and do a head count and go, hey. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, you would be a bit of an idiot if you did that on a regular occasion. <laughs> but I think what you get is um, a much more um, sort of empathetic and sympathetic agency. You know, we don't have... Uh, you know, braying idiots like you know, sort of being bros in the office, mm. and I, you know, and I hear horror stories of other agencies, you know, where it is a lad culture. We don't have bants, mm. you know, we don't, and those are the things where we didn't really have it in well made either. And I have been totally blessed, but I have been in places where it's been dominated by a couple of white guys, and you do feel very, very sort of you know crushed by. You know mm. the, the the sort of atmosphere, and there isn't a freedom to talk. I'm quite a loud person. I've got a really loud, stupid voice. I never feel <laughs> uncomfortable about laughing in the office, or you know, sort of having an opinion. Um, and you know, I think that is because we have to be tolerant. We have to be a little bit more respectful, and and it comes through. Maybe you know, it doesn't make our work any different. But in terms of the people that we bring into the agency and the voices that we've got, it is very noticeable then. There's a reason why diversity initiatives don't work and they have sort of specifically failed. It's because we sort of, you know, we say to the people of colour who, you know, represent between 0.2 and 3% of the industry, you go off and solve this massive, huge problem. This is your problem. You know, you fix this. Or we say to, you know, women in the industry, you go off and fix this massive problem. You know, there's 17% of you. and, And I think we're almost like sort of, shifting responsibility you know and I think instead of including you know the overrepresented voices of the industry in that conversation you know if I ever do talk oh you know if it's ever specifically women in the industry it's all women there and you just sort of preaching to the converted yeah exactly and you sort of sit there and think you know we don't want to make a lot of people redundant although I can like name I'm not going to, but I could name six guys who've <laughs> gone immediately. <laughs> just and leave. <laughs> but it's not about taking people's roles off. And I think that I think that's the concern is that you know there are limited jobs at the top, and they are you know sort of dominated by a specific type of person, mm. and they are very concerned about losing their position, losing their wage, losing their you know authority. And that's frightening, you know, if, if you have all of the privilege, you don't want to give that away. Mm. And I, I think that's, I don't even know how we would reconcile that. I don't know how we say, you know, we need more underrepresented voices in positions of leadership, but that means that some people are going to have to make room. And I think, the, have you seen what Diet Madison Avenue are doing with their Me Too movement? Oh, no. Oh, you've got to see it, right? So Diet Madison Avenue are um, some female ad industry executives who are literally just naming and shaming the pervs. Oh, yeah. wow. And they, it's like, go on their Instagram, they are just going, this dude is like, is an, you know, an accused serial sex pest and this agency is doing nothing about it. And it's amazing. It's totally amazing. Wow. And they're experiencing quite a big backlash. Mm. Um, and they're getting quite a hard time in the industry, but they're just carrying on. And, you know, mm. when I sit there and say, oh, I'm not going to name and shame, and it's like, I think the upsetting thing is a lot of people have got a Me Too story, you know, and it might not be very serious, and I think sometimes they are incredibly serious. Um, you know, and my, 
reticent about, you know, naming, you know, the guy who sort of felt me up and was just like, who was in now in a position of authority is that, mm. you know, for me, I sit there and I think, oh, well, my story isn't, I, you know, I wasn't raped, or I was like, I wasn't coerced into doing something, I was just made to feel a little bit gross. Mm. But if we could swipe out all of those dudes, there would be more positions at the top. <laughs> But and that's why I love what Diet Madison Avenue are doing because they are they're brave enough to make it happen and they are creating real change and they are creating openings. You know, and if you think about you know agencies that were trying to you know you know recover their reputation from having you know say you know if you've got someone who's a serial abuser who's been in a position of authority for six years and they've done nothing about it, they're probably not going to replace that guy with another white guy mm. and and that's. And that's why I think it's amazing and it's heartening. And we go, oh, it's you know, it's too harsh and you know, they shouldn't be doing it like this. And I'm just like, man, crack on, let's get rid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, let's also be aware that, you know, most guys don't. They don't abuse and they, they, no. they're not sex yeah. Yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. and they're very respectful and they're very, very lovely. And, you know, I, th- I think actually in terms of sort of abusive behaviour I think I've been a lot more unpleasant to people than Joe and Doug have I get away with it because I'm a white lady but you know I think it's just yeah there is room and I think people are very reticent about making yeah I think I that, 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 yeah that's one of the problems I think yeah. someone needs to go right yeah. <laughs> but then I mean when they retire you know like I think it's yeah. like continually like pushing yeah. pushing people up it's the It's just such a slow process at the moment. Yeah, it is. And I think like um I'm always like wondering like what because I think it's really like if you have privilege and you're not you're not aware of it yeah. most of the time. Yeah. Unless you see someone who's not as privileged yeah. and like have direct contact with them. But it's like, if you're not aware of it, you you have no intention or no drive to change anything. Oh, no. Like, why would you? Yeah. And I think and a lot of people in the industry as well, they think they're here because they're more creative or mm. they've worked harder. They've worked hard, Oh, yeah, yeah you know, it's like, I've you know, pulled so many late nights and mm. my portfolio is just better than you. And you just have to go, it's just not. Mm. Like, 90% of the work in the industry turns out as weak. Yeah. <laughs> and I know that's because clients weeks and we don't get our first ideas. <laughs> but, you know, I'm very, very aware that I've, you know, I've passed off some shoddy work in my career and still got paid for it. <laughs> I think everyone has. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's just, and it's just the fact that you know, even in terms of, you know, down to the fact that I've probably got quite a memorable name. So when someone's trying to think of a copywriter, they go, "Oh, the girl with, you know, the girl with the hair, or the girl with the name." <laughs> it's that basic. <laughs> but, but yeah, I think um, it, it's it's recognizing that it's not a meritocracy, mm. and I think, and then as soon as you actually say, "Oh, well, I've got." got this level of privilege or I've got you know a voice or I've got you know a small corner of the industry who's willing to listen to me at that point you have to start saying well you know this person's amazing this person's amazing you need to speak to this Mm. person and I think you know I spoke before about being a terrible terrible mentor you know there's that difference between being a mentor and being a sponsor and whereas a mentor is your sounding board you know, your sponsor is that person who just gets behind you and go, this person can do this job, this mm. person can do that. And, you know, I think we have a responsibility as the privileged cluster of the industry 
to pick out underrepresented voices and just sponsor them and just give them the opportunities that our you know our networks afford us. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Is that what would be like your number one tip that you would give to someone who wants to get into the creative industries but might not be set up for success? Oh uh, yeah, okay. Um, I know that's like a, that's really hard. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, God, that's there's so there were so many different things in play here. Uh, one thing you know, one thing I can say is that you know, Dare's creating an internship where we're going to take um, four people a year from non-traditional backgrounds. So it's 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 the industry sprawling and it's massive but it's doing your research and finding who is you know if someone's actually paying lip service to diversity you know you can challenge them and you can say all right what are you doing you know if you've got someone who goes 10 things we need to know about diversity you know mm-hmm. it's like go in there and say well put your money where your mouth is you know i do, I do struggle with internships because i think there's still uses an opportunity to you know harvest free labor mm. Um, unpaid internships obviously Uh, but I think also as well a really interesting route in to the industry is going it alone for a while and I always think if you are prepared to work for a pittance or prepared to work maybe for free as well why not do your own thing for a bit you know we set up our own agency well made was a byproduct of mercy which was a zine and Mm -hmm. it was shit and it cost us 150 pounds in addition but it was an in into the industry that we sort of masterminded ourselves you know I know that the guys who set up Mundial magazine same thing you know I can remember years ago um, Dan Sanderson the editor he was just like used to like tweet funny things about football while he was on the dole you know and and it's people are from non-traditional backgrounds are creating their own routes into the industry they're doing their own events they're doing their own zines they're you know sort of setting up businesses which you know ours was terrible we can't run a business we'd be useless but you know we sort of got ourselves in front of the right kind of people and we had an energy and we had you know a willingness to over service that you don't get in a big agency mm-hmm. um, and that made that made our career you know the three of us from Well Made have gone off and done you know, incredible things off the back of Well Made. And I, I see, you know, people who, you know, have gone off, you know, been freelance or been self-employed or set up their own little tiny micro-agencies who've then been able to jump up to the next stage without having to intern and without having to, um, you know, kiss a lot of arse. Uh, you know, and have got a really interesting range of experiences as well. So it's not just someone who, you know, has been a junior designer and just knows how to artwork. It's someone who knows how to pitch to a client and create a proposal and cost up work and manage their own time and deal with clients. And, you know, if you sort of get into the agency world, we're not looking for, you know, linear skills. One person who's, you know, you don't just want someone who's an amazing art worker. Mm. You want someone who's an amazing art worker who can also do every other stage of the process. They're probably not ever going to be asked to do it, but they understand how it works. Um, so, yeah, I think in terms of like getting into the industry, if you don't come from the right school or if you haven't got your parents to support you while you intern for free for however many months or years, then you just have to bite the bullet and do it yourself. And I think working regionally, what's happening in Preston, what's happening in, um, like, so with Preston is my Paris, uh, you know, Liverpool, they had, like, don't drop the dumbbells, they do, like, everything that Casimir are doing, they're all creating their own thing, 
and that's really really interesting as well and you know so there's a uh, an activist and a designer called Sophia Andre she's just so proactive in what she does and you know it's like I can go and talk about her to other people and mm-hmm. they already know who she is because she puts out zines and she has a voice mm-hmm. and she's active and she's like giving educational talks and she's going in and she's so 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 proactive about what she does that she doesn't need an agency to support she doesn't need an agency background she will just succeed off her own sort of will and that's nice to see as well I hope this interview has opened your eyes and made you a little bit more aware of your own privileges It certainly has for me. Privilege is a tough topic because it is intangible and connected to feelings of guilt and shame. But let's continue talking about it openly. The first step to change is always awareness. If you want to find out more about Gemma's work, you can find her details in the show notes. I'll be back here with another episode soon. Stay tuned.